If you have your Bibles or a Bible that we've lent you, please turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Love that sound. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1 to verse 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we gather this morning as the sheep of your pasture, your people, those whom you have called out of the world, out of the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of your glorious light. Father, we are thankful for the privilege of being your sheep, of hearing your voice because of the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit and now being counted as one of your own. And so, Father, we have heard your call this morning to gather as your people, and so we come to hear the voice of Jesus now through his word. And so we pray that your spirit would give us ears to hear. And Father, for those here this morning who do not belong to your sheepfold, that you would call them to yourself, that they would see Jesus, the open door, and that they would not just stand back and admire him, but they would enter through him, that they might know abundant life and salvation in Jesus. Father, it's foolishness for us to think that we can do this on our own. Only your spirit can accomplish it. And so we pray that he would now accompany the preaching of your word, sustain this preacher to preach and to hear the word. And Father, for those who are listening along, I pray for them as well, that they would receive the word with joy and gladness. We ask this In the name of the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Well, as hard as it is to believe, we are in the final days of the year of our Lord, 2013. Can you guys believe how quickly 2013 went by? I feel like I just blinked. And now we're going to have to get used to to writing 2014. I don't think I'm quite ready for that. 
But now that these are the final days of 2013, you know what that means, right? It means it's the time of year where everybody gets, gets out their pen and paper and they write out their New Year's resolutions. How many of you guys write New Year's resolutions? How, raise your hand if you write out New Year's resolutions. Are you guys just not wanting to participate or is it really that low? <laughs> well, okay, you guys are an anomaly because according to a study that I read this past week done by the University of Scranton, 45% of all Americans write out New Year's resolutions. 45%. And I bet you can probably guess what the number one resolution is. The number one resolution for Americans is to lose weight. So apparently we're a little, uh, we're a little ch- on the chubby side as Americans. But uh, other New Year's resolutions include getting more organized. Apparently we're also not very organized. Um, spending less money and saving more. Finding a, a better balance between work life and home life and just living a better and more healthy lifestyle in general. And there's various other New Year's resolutions. But what I found interesting about the study is they also found that only 8% of that 45% who actually did New Year's resolutions accomplished them. Only 8% actually fulfill the New Year's resolutions to completion that they set out to do in the new year. Now let me ask you another question. What compels us? What motivates us to do New Year's resolutions? What's the reason behind it? Well, the answer to that question is pretty simple. It's that we want a better life, don't we? We want to improve our lives. We want the year 2014 to be better, more fulfilling, more satisfying than the year 2013. But what this study is showing us is that while we all want a better life, we do a terrible job of actually making our lives better. We all want our best life now, and yet we can't seem to get it. But what's even worse and even a little depressing, if you actually stop and think about it, is the reality that with each passing year, we've lost a little bit more of our lives haven't we? Sure, we get excited about looking forward to the future, but the realization also hits us, that's one less year of our lives to spend doing what we, we want to do and to spend with our loved ones. We're one year closer now to our deaths. You see, while a few of us might, may be able to improve our lives in little insignificant ways, at the end of the day, we all know that we're broken fundamentally. We are, at our most basic level, a broken people, and we can't fix ourselves. And as much as we try to fight it, the reality is that we're all dying, and we desperately need life, but the way seems shut to us. No matter how hard we search, we cannot find the life that we want, that we desire. Let me put a word picture on it for you. It's, it's as if we're pilgrims who are on a journey and we're searching out a new land, a new place, a new life, a new place to call home. But we're stuck because we've run into this wall that's in between us and the abundant life. And we can't climb over it and we can't go around it. And so what we desperately need is a gate to be carved out of that wall so that we can go through it and into the abundant life. But the question is, where can we find this gate? Does such a gate even exist? 
Well, our passage this morning answers that very question with a resounding yes. And it does so by showing us four spiritual truths about the gate that can lead us to the abundant life. Four spiritual truths about the gate that leads to the abundant life. We're gonna see the necessity of the gate, the identity of the gate, the offenses of the gate, and the blessings of the gate. So first, let's look at the necessity of the gate. Look at chapter 10, verses one through six with me again. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now, as we jump into chapter 10, I don't want us to forget the context in which Jesus is teaching. And if you remember from our previous studies led by Pastor Chad in this I Am series of the sayings of Jesus in the book of John, we've seen that Jesus is in Judea, and the Jews are celebrating the Feast of Booths. And as Jesus is there, he shows up at the temple, and he begins to teach the Jews. And some of them are so infuriated by Jesus' teaching that they pick up stones to stone him. Jesus, knowing what was about to happen, escapes, and as he's leaving the temple, he passes by a man who was blind from birth. This man had never seen light. And so Jesus heals him. And for the first time in this man's life, he is able to behold the miracle of light because of the miracle that Jesus performed on him. Now, the Pharisees found out that Jesus healed this man born blind on the Sabbath, and so angry about that, they find this man who was healed, and they interrogate him. And what becomes abundantly clear to them is that this man who was born blind, who's been healed, is siding with Jesus and not with them. And so what they do, verse 34 of chapter 9 tells us, is they cast him out. They cast him out of the sheepfold of Judaism. They were excommunicating him from the Jewish religion. And when Jesus hears that they cast this man out, he goes and he finds him. And the man professes faith in Jesus and worships him. You see, the man born blind not only had his physical sight restored to him, he also had his spiritual eyes opened and he was able to see Jesus for who he was. While the religious leaders remained in their spiritual blindness, even though they claimed to see, and that's why Jesus says they remained guilty. And it's in this context that Jesus begins to teach the Jews again. And this time, he uses the picture with them of the good shepherd. He claims, I am the good shepherd. And what Jesus is saying here by calling himself the good shepherd is he's contrasting himself to the Pharisees, to um, the, the Sadducees, the religious leaders within Judaism. He's saying they're bad shepherds. Jesus had called them, I'm sorry, God had called these men, these religious leaders, to care for the sheep of Israel. 
And they weren't. They, they cared only about themselves. Jesus calls them thieves and robbers who only seek to steal and kill and destroy. And Jesus is saying, that's them. They're the bad shepherds, but I am the good shepherd. I have come to bring the sheep life. That's why I've come. And Jesus is telling us that he's come as the good shepherd to call his sheep out of the big sheepfold that is Judaism. He's going to call his sheep by name. They're going to hear his voice, and they're going to come out and be a part of Jesus' new sheepfold. And those who are not his sheep, who do not hear his voice, they will stay with the bad shepherds. That's what Jesus is talking about in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 10. Now, next week, we're going to look more closely at what Jesus means when he calls himself the good shepherd in verses 11 through 21. But today, I want to look more closely at Jesus' claims specifically in verses 6 through 10. And what we immediately notice in these verses is Jesus' frequent use of the word door. Now, it's important that you understand that in the Greek, that word can also very easily be translated gate. And the reason that Jesus is referencing a gate here is because the purpose of a gate is to serve as a way of access. So what Jesus is telling us is he knows we want to have access to the abundant life. He knows we want that, but we don't have an access point. The way to the abundant life is shut to us. Now we have to ask ourselves a question, why is that? Why is it that the way to the abundant life is shut to us, but we want it so very badly? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to go all the way back to the very beginning of the story. We have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And what we find there is that when God created Adam and Eve, he created them to experience abundant life. As a matter of fact, all that God created, he created to experience abundant life. And we see that as God creates all things. He makes the heavens, and then he fills them with life. He makes the seas, and then he fills them with life. He makes the dry land, and then he fills them with life. And after he's created everything, he chooses to put the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, in the most beautiful spot of all, the Garden of Eden. And in the garden, they had everything that they could possibly want. But most importantly of all, they walked with God. They talked with God. They had intimate, perfect fellowship with God, direct access to God. This is the abundant life. But after they sinned, after they disobeyed God by eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God kicked them out. He kicked them out of the Garden of Eden, casting them out, and to make sure that they'd never return Verse 24 of Genesis 3 tells us that God placed an angel with a flaming sword so that no one could ever enter the Garden of Eden again or eat from the tree of life. So why do we need a gate? Because the way to the abundant life is shut to us because of our sin. Instead of being under God's blessing, we are now under his wrath for our sins and our sinfulness. And so we need to be saved from his wrath. That's our essential problem. Now, thankfully, God promised in Genesis 3.15 that he would send us a redeemer who would save us and reconcile us to God. But that wouldn't be realized. That promise wouldn't come to fruition for millennia. And in the meantime, things seem to go from bad 
to worse. As we continue in Genesis, we see in chapter 6 that mankind becomes so wicked that God declares to Noah that he will kill all of humanity in a great flood. It's a grim picture, sparing only Noah and his family. So God tells Noah to build an ark, a huge boat, and he gives him very specific instructions as to how to do that, and then to bring his family and animals with him. And how does Noah enter that ark so that he and his family can be saved? How does he get in? Through a door. Noah and his family can only be saved from God's wrath and experience abundant life if they go through the door of the ark. That's where they experience the abundant life. So you see, the ark here is a picture of the abundant life and salvation, and the only way to access it is through that door, an opening that God has provided. But you know, in our sinfulness, we're not really content with the ways that God makes for us, are we? We want to make our own way. We want to be like Frank Sinatra and be able to sing at the top of our lungs in defiance of God and the world, I did it my way. Why? Because in our pride, we think that we can save ourselves. If you need proof of that, just look at Genesis chapter 11, just a few chapters after the flood happens. What do we find mankind doing? They're coming together And saying in verse 4 of Genesis chapter 11, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower or a staircase, a ziggurat, with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So what are they trying to do? They're trying to ascend to heaven. They're trying to build a staircase, an opening into heaven, because they're trying to save themselves. They're seeking to grab God's blessings in the heavens and bring them down to earth. And how does God respond to that? He frustrates their plans, doesn't he? He comes down in judgment and confuses their languages and scatters them across the face of the earth. You see, God is screaming in their ears, the way is shut. You cannot ascend to me. Because that's what they were trying to do. Do you guys remember the name of this tower? It's Babel, isn't it? And do you know how that's translated in Babylonian? It's translated literally the gateway of God. They were trying to build a gateway to God, but God stopped them. And guess how Babel is translated in Hebrew. It's translated literally confusion. So God took their attempts to build a gateway to him and he brought confusion upon them. Why? Because the way is shut. But that's not where the story ends. If we fast forward a a few more chapters to Genesis 28, God gives us another picture, another promise that he will make a way for salvation and the abundant life. This time it comes in the life of Jacob. And if you know anything about the, the life of Jacob, you know that Jacob desperately sought and wanted to obtain blessing on his life, going even so far as to, to rob the family blessing from his older uh, twin brother Esau, who it rightfully belonged to. And so what we have here in Genesis 28 is we find Jacob fleeing from his, his older brother Esau, who's threatened to kill him. And he's also on his way to go find himself a wife from a family that his father approved of. And as he's on this journey, nighttime comes, 
And so with a a stone for his pillow, he lies down and he sleeps. And as he sleeps, verse 12 of Genesis 28 tells us, he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. Now, what's the point of this dream that Jacob has? The point is that God has opened a way from heaven to earth. He's done it. And what's Jacob's contribution? The author of Genesis could make it more clear to us. What is Jacob doing? He's sleeping. He's not contributing anything. He didn't contribute in any way, shape, or form. God has done it all. And then God uses that opening to come down to Jacob. And we know that because uh, the phrase, the Lord stood above it in verse 13 can also be translated, the Lord stood beside him. And so what it's telling us is that God has come down this ladder, this staircase, and he is now with Jacob. And then in verses 13 through 15, while Jacob is fast asleep, God pronounces over him the blessing of salvation, the Abrahamic blessing and the blessing of abundant life over Jacob. Do you see the picture here? I hope you're not missing it because it's beautiful. Let me give you another picture. It's like God is standing over the bed of one of his, like a parent, excuse me, a beloved parent, standing over the uh, the bed of the child they love while they're fast asleep. And this parent is praying prayers of blessing over them as they sleep. That's the picture. And what does Jacob say when he wakes up? Verse 17, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And now notice this, and this is the gate, the gate of heaven. So you see, the point is clear again and again and again through the storyline of scripture. We can't make our own way to salvation and the abundant life. God and God alone can make the way. But all of this still leaves us with another question. Okay, God has promised a gate. He's promised a way, but where is it? What is it? How can we identify this gate? Well, let's look at our next point. The identity of the gate. The identity of the gate. Look at verse seven with me. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door or I am the gate of the sheep. So Jesus is continuing to use the shepherding imagery here, but instead of calling himself the good shepherd, he refers to himself as the door or the gate of the sheep. And in order to understand what Jesus is saying here, we have to understand the ancient practices of shepherding in Jesus's time. And here's what it looked like. Um, During the daytime, the shepherd would lead his flock out into the open fields and they would be in search of the best pasture. And then as nighttime would fall, he would bring his um, sheep, his flock, to one of these many sheep pens that were out in the open fields. And these sheep pens were, were very basic. They were made out of four walls. They had four walls, usually made out of stone. And then there was one small opening on one of the walls, just big enough for the sheep to get in and out. But there was no gate. There was no gate. And so what the shepherd would do is he would lead his flock into this sheep pen, 
And once they were all in there, he would lay down where that opening was and he would literally be the, sh- the gate of the sheep. Anything that wanted to go into the sheep pen or come out of the sheep pen had to go through him. So by laying down, he was keeping the sheep in and he was keeping any potential predators, rob, uh, robbers, thieves, or wolves, anything out by being the gate of the sheep. And so what Jesus is saying here is that spiritually speaking, he is the gate for his sheep, for his people. The only way we can be saved from God's wrath, the only way we can be reconciled to God and experience the abundant life is through Jesus, the son of God. There is no other way. But do you see what Jesus is also doing here? Jesus is identifying himself as the gate that God had promised for centuries to his people. Let me show you this a little more clearly. Look at John chapter 1, verse 47. John chapter 1, verse 47. And while you're turning there, let me set things up for you. Jesus has called his first disciples, and one of them, Philip, goes and tells Nathanael that they have found the promised Messiah. Now, Nathaniel's pretty skeptical. You know, he's famous for saying, could anything good come from Nazareth? But he comes to Jesus anyway. And when Jesus sees him, he says in verse 47, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. How did he know what I was doing under the fig tree? Nobody else was there. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, now listen to this, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of God. Of man. Now, where have we heard this kind of language before? This is an exact reference back to Genesis 28. And what Jesus is saying here is that he is the gate of heaven. He is the gate that God had promised. He is the way to be saved. He is the way to the abundant life. And that's why later on in, in the book of John, in, in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way. And the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. So salvation and the abundant life we were created for, that we know we were created for and are desperately searching for, come from God the Father. And the only way to get to him, Jesus is saying, is through me. I am the gate of the sheep. Which is why Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6, affirming this point, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all. I want to make sure you didn't miss that. How many mediators are there between God and men? One. There are not many. There are one. And Jesus is that one. Jesus is. In Jesus alone. That's why the author of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, 
And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. The gate by which we enter must be and can only be the broken, buried, resurrected, and glorified body of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Jesus alone is the gate. The Old Testament makes that abundantly clear and the New Testament makes that abundantly clear. Now that's not a very popular message today, is it? As a matter of fact, it's not just unpopular, it's, it's downright offensive to our culture, which leads us to our third point, the offenses of the gate. The offenses of the gate. Look at verses eight through 10 again with me. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, isn't it amazing, almost refreshing, how little Jesus fears being offensive? As someone who struggles with the fear of man, I love to watch Jesus in action in his earthly ministry. I mean, the Jews already tried to stone him once in chapter eight after he was done teaching. And now after he's done with this teaching, they're gonna try to stone him again. But Jesus doesn't back down. Why? Because Jesus is on a mission. He's calling his sheep to himself. And his sheep, his people aren't offended by the truth. On the contrary, they love it. Their ears are attuned to it and they're drawn to it. And so Jesus is calling his sheep into the fold with, tr with the truth. That's why he doesn't back down. But what about those who aren't his sheep, who, who, who don't hear his voice? How do they respond to him? They're offended, aren't they? And what do they find so offensive? Well, let me give you two reasons. There are a lot more than this. But let me give you two reasons why unbelievers are so offended by Jesus' teaching here. The first reason they're offended is because Jesus is calling out false teachers. You see, the thieves and the robbers that Jesus is talking about in verses one and eight and 10, I always used to think that those verses were talking about Satan. They're not. In context, Jesus is calling the Jewish religious leaders these things, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees, and Jesus is calling them out. He's saying, he's saying they don't care about the sheep. They only care about themselves. They're only looking out for themselves. And so they lie and steal and kill and destroy. And we understand why this is so offensive, don't we? I mean, of all the cultures in the history of the world, we should get this because it seems in our Western culture, the only thing that you can really do that, that's super offensive is to tell someone that they're wrong. I mean, let me give you an example. How comfortable would you all be if I stood up here this morning and I publicly read off a list of pastors in town that I think you should avoid. Some of you'd probably squirm in your seats a little bit, wouldn't you? I'd say most, I probably would while I was doing it. But guess what? That's what Jesus is doing here. He's calling out the false teachers. He's calling out the lies. So sovereign grace, let's not be afraid 
to call out lies and wrongdoing and false teachers when we see it. Let's follow the example of Jesus, our shepherd, and not be afraid to proclaim the truth and to rebuke the lies. Second reason why Jesus, his teaching in specific, is so offensive to unbelievers is because Jesus is exclusive. You knew this was coming. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. Now remember, he's already identified himself as that gate. For the gate is wide. Sure, there's other gates. They're wide. And the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow. And the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Again, Jesus is making abundantly clear the only way to God is through him. Yes, there are many gates, but they all lead to destruction. The only gate that leads to God is Jesus. That's what he's claiming about himself. But have you ever stopped and asked yourself why the ex- exclusive claims of Jesus are so offensive to unbelievers? You ever stop and think about that? The reason that they're offended by it is because they don't think they're that bad off. Think about it. If the doctor told you that you had terminal cancer, you're going to die from this. But there was one sure, certain cure. Would you be offended by that? Would you be offended? Would you grumble that there was only one way to get rid of your cancer? No. You'd be thankful and grateful that there was any way at all. But you see, the problem is unbelievers don't think They're terminal. They don't think they're spiritually dead. They'll admit that they're not perfect, but surely I'm not so bad that God would have to send his only son and slaughter him on a cross in order to save me. I'm not that bad off. I just just need some therapy. I just need a little good advice. Can you give me some of that? I just need some moral direction. Tell me the moral direction Jesus gives. I just need a set of religious hoops to jump through. That's what they say. See, Jesus' claim to be the only way is so offensive because it tells us that we cannot, we are unable to save ourselves. We need him to save us. Notice that Jesus doesn't give us a list of commands as a way to be saved. He says that he is the way to be saved. It's only through him, through faith in him, that we can be saved. He's already done it all. There's nothing for you to do but to walk through the door. And guess what? In our spiritual pride, we hate that truth. We hate that the only way to the abundant life is through grace. We hate it. The only reason that we as Christians don't hate it is because the Holy Spirit has graciously opened our eyes to see just how great our need is, to see the depths of our helplessness. We've got nothing to boast about. It's only because the Spirit's opened our eyes to see our great need that we don't hate it. But until the Holy Spirit does the same thing in unbelievers, they'll continue to be offended by Jesus' claim to be the only way. And I hope that's a good reminder. I know it has been for me as I've been preparing this week for all of us to be praying fervently for the unbelievers around us, that their eyes would be open because we should want them to experience the blessings that we know of knowing Jesus as the gate. Well, what are those blessings? Let's, let's close with this, the blessings of the gate. Look at verses nine through 10 with me again. 
I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, in these verses, Jesus is making it abundantly clear to us as to why he came as the gate. And what he says is that he came that we may have life and have it abundantly. So not only do we want the abundant life, but Jesus actually came to give it, do, give it to us. But we still have to answer a question. What does the abundant life actually look like? What does it actually look like? And, and in order to answer this question, let me start off by, ans- by telling you what it doesn't look like. There's a lot of misconceptions about what the abundant life looks like. We have to start there because some false uh, teachers would have you believe that the abundant life means that if you have enough faith, you never get sick, and you're always rich, and things will always be going your way. And let me tell you right now, I think most of you probably already know this, that is not the abundant life that Jesus came to give us. Now, don't get me wrong. In the new heavens and the new earth, this is absolutely astounding, we will never get sick. We will possess all things with Jesus, and we will rule and reign with him. But that's not going to happen in this life. That happens at the end of the story when Jesus comes back the second time. So you see, the fundamental problem with the prosperity gospel is that you're simply using God to get what you want. The main attraction isn't God himself, it's what God can give you. And faith is nothing more than a chain that you place on God's neck so that you can lead him around and make him do whatever you want. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you, that is a lie, a lie, a lie. The best part about the abundant life that Jesus gives us is that he gives us himself. He gives us access to God. That's the first blessing that we get from Jesus as the gate. He reconciles us to God so that we can draw near to him and call him Abba, Father, Daddy. You see, that's the heart of the abundant life. Communion with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what we were created for. That's what we lost in the fall, but through Jesus as our gate, it's restored to us. And as if that weren't enough, the second blessing Jesus gives us is salvation. Jesus says, if anyone believes in me, he will be saved. Anyone. If you're an unbeliever here this morning and you're hearing the voice of Jesus for the first time, he's calling out to you, come, be saved. Now, what what does he mean? We'll be saved from what? Saved from God's wrath. Because of our sins, we deserve God's wrath. But on the cross, Jesus took that upon himself because he laid down his life as the good shepherd. But that's not all. Jesus also saved us from our slavery to the flesh, the world, and the devil. We no longer live according to our sinful passions. We no longer live according to the world's way of thinking, and we no longer live with Satan as our master. Through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus has saved us from all of that. And we now live in humble submission to him according to his word. And the third blessing Jesus gives us is protection. Protection. Jesus says in verse 9, that through him we will go in and out 
and find pasture. And what he's talking about here is the fact that in all of our dealings in life, as we seek to live for him, Jesus is caring for us. Just as the sheep only came in and out of the sheep pen under the watchful eye of the shepherd, so too Jesus watches over us as we live our lives in this fallen world. I know it all seems out of control, but it's not out of Jesus' control. He's caring for you as his sheep. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, and Jesus is wielding that power for our good and for his glory. So brothers and sisters, please, please don't believe the lies of the flesh, the world, and the devil, the lies of false teachers who vainly promise you to show you the way to the abundant life. The way is shut to us if we seek it by our own efforts. Jesus is the only way. He himself is the gate of the sheep. So rest in him. Look to him and unabashedly proclaim him. Will the world be offended? Absolutely, expect it. But you do not need to fear because Jesus has given you the abundant life. He's given you access to God. He's given you salvation. And he's promised you his protection. You see, sovereign grace, it's only because Jesus is the gate that we can confess together in Christ alone. My hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when strivings cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. Let me pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we humbly acknowledge together that in the fall, we lost our access to the abundant life. And by nature and, and by our own choices, we have rebelled against you. We have been like those who built the Tower of Babel. We wanted to ascend to the heavens, overthrow your rule and reign, take your place as God, and, and command our own destiny. That's what we wanted to do, sinning and rebelling against you. And it's when we were in that state, without any hope, that you sent Jesus to be the gate. You sent him to live and die and be buried and raised from the dead and ascend to your right hand. And because he has done that and you sent your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, we now heard his voice and you've called us out of the world and into Jesus' sheepfold. We are now the sheep of his pasture and he cares for us and he loves us. He's saved us. He protects us. And Father, we know that we now live in a world where you've left us here to proclaim the good news and to dispel and call out and, and, and call the lies, lies. And Father, the world hates that. That's not anything new. It always has. But Father, we confess that sometimes we're afraid in this fallen world. And so we pray that we would trust in you, knowing that you care for us and that you love us. Give us the strength
of your Holy Spirit who now dwells within us to stand for your truth, to stand for your word, to proclaim the gospel and dispel the lies. Father, thank you for Jesus, for providing him as the way and opening our eyes to see him and for drawing us to yourself so that we've now gone through him as the gate and we have access to him, to you, and to you, Holy Spirit. That is the abundant life. Thank you for giving yourself to us. We love you. And we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.